All right. Well, welcome to our second week of our fall series. I've entitled Faith Through Love. We started this just last week where we're walking through the book of Galatians. And so if you have your Bible, just go ahead and get there. We're going to get there eventually. Uh, this all, the title all comes from uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, which is our theme verse uh, through this whole series. But the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And we talked about that last week and really how that's a pretty bold statement to make. Uh, but when it comes down to it, and, and really the whole thing that we, we kind of talked about last week is, yes, we want to come and we want to learn, but um, when we learn things, no matter what it is that we learn in church, the whole, the whole hook of all that is that we apply it. We can gain a lot of wisdom and a lot of understanding, but if we're not living it, if we're not applying it, it really doesn't matter. And so our big thought from last week, if you weren't here, was faith through love starts with what you believe and how you live. And, and we talked about how we, we believe the one true gospel, which is the very first thing that Paul uh, addresses in, the, in chapter one of Galatians about how uh, people had come in after Paul established the book, uh, after Paul established the churches in Galatia, uh, and uh, they came in and kind of distorted it. They said, you got to do certain things to really be Christians, right? Uh, and Paul's like, hang on just a second. That's not the gospel that I taught you. And then uh, after all that, he said, you gotta, you got to live this out, right? We, we try to distort the gospel into something that serves us instead of us serving the gospel. It fits our wants and needs instead of our wants and needs conforming to the gospel. And then, uh, then he says, listen, we got to live this out. We got to make this real practical. And there's got to be a connect between what we believe and what we do. And so this week, uh, really what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of hammer into that thought over and over again. And, and everybody's favorite, I don't know, uh, condemnation to Christians, I guess, or you, you all know this word, hypocrisy, right? That's the, that's the kind of outside view looking in is that the church is just hypocritical or maybe its membership is hypocritical. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about what it really means. It's going to be a tough day but I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, so you got your Bible open to Galatians. Before we get into that, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but you need to understand why this played out the way it played out. And last week, I showed you this map, and I told you that Galatia is really a, a region. It's not necessarily a town. There's not a town of Galatia. It's a region. And there really, there are four churches that Paul wrote this letter to in Galatia. That's where those pink arrows are pointing to. That's Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch in Posada. Okay. And so these four churches are churches that Paul established. They're the ones that he kind of poured into. Now let's kind of walk through Paul's life to see how he got to those places and why this is so important. Remember, uh, Paul was a, uh, he was a Pharisee, right? He was trained by Gamaliel, which is a really interesting guy in the Bible. If you have any time to study on who he is, it's really great. Uh, he was, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And it meant that he was a persecutor of the early church, right? The first time we're introduced to Paul, his name was Saul. And he's kind of giving his thumbs up of approval to stone Stephen, the first martyr, right? He's holding all the coats so the guys can throw better, okay? And he's there. And, and as, as we see this kind of happen, he's, he is really just trying to defend traditional Judaism, He's, he's trying to say, no, no, this whole Jesus thing is not what the Scripture says, the Old Testament Scripture, so we got to defend traditional Judaism. And then we see Paul move uh, from that to uh, the person that we know him as on his road to Damascus, right? His road to Damascus experience changed Paul. Jesus appeared to him. Uh, he temporarily blinded him, and he gave him this new purpose and new calling on life. And what we see is that Paul... Uh, went, he went on to Damascus, right? That was where he was going. And he stayed there for three years, 
three years of learning and digging into Scripture, getting his kind of his theological feet underneath him, if you would. He's, he's really trying to figure out uh, what it is that he believes and what Jesus and how he applies to what all he knows about the Old Testament Scripture and the fulfillment of all that stuff. And then we read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, he's talking about his time in Damascus. And he says, after three years, that's why we know he spent three years there, I went to Jerusalem and got acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. Now, this is just a short visit, right? He went back to the head church, right? The church in Jerusalem, and Peter is there. Peter's kind of leading the charge. Really, Peter and James, which is Jesus' half-brother, are kind of leading that church in Jerusalem. He just stays 15 days, and from there, he leaves and goes to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish here, he stays for 10 years. Talk about commitment, right? Ten years we have of unrecorded ministry work in Tarsus. We know that he stayed there for a good long time and he's pouring into the people in Tarsus and he's really getting to know them and he's really kind of uh, just giving them all he's got. And then the church in Jerusalem kind of gets word back going, listen, this Paul guy is like, he's shaking things up. Like he's doing a really good job. And so they do what any other good church would do. They say, hey, Barnabas, Go check this guy out. Make sure he's legit. Make sure he's doing everything he's supposed to do. And so Barnabas goes up to Tarsus and meets with Paul, and they together leave and go to Antioch. Now, I told you last week that there's two different Antiochs. There's the Antioch in Posada, which is a Galatian church, but there's the other Antioch that's on the sea and the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And so they go to this Antioch, the one by the sea. It's in Syria. And uh, they stay there for a year. The Bible says that, 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 that the believers were first called Christians at Antioch. That's when Barnabas and Paul were there together. After a year there, they go back to Jerusalem. It's another short visit. They bring like a relief offering, a famine relief offering. And the church sends them back to uh, Antioch. And Antioch, the church in Antioch, sends them on their first missionary journey together. We know that because Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, right? It says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So we got 10 years at Tarshish, three years at Damascus, and a year at Antioch. And they're going, okay, now it's time to go, right? So we got those 14 years uh, all together, and they're finally off on their first missionary journey together. Wonder where they went. Well, you don't have to turn there. I've got the scripture on the screen, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 tells us, uh, from Perga, they went to the Pisidian Antioch. That's one of our Galatian churches, right? This, this, they, here they taught, and, then, and some Jews rose up against them and kind of ran them out of town. And we keep reading Acts chapter 13, verse 51. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. That's another Galatian church, right? Again, another plot against uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they kind of ran them off. In Acts chapter 14, verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some of them sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. But they heard about it, and they fled to the Lakotian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. During this first missionary journey, Paul established these Galatian churches, right? Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch, and Poseidon. This is where he went on his first one. He poured into these people, right? He taught them. He risked his life over and over again to continue to pour into them. Acts chapter 14 tells the story about how uh, when they were in Lystra, uh, they stoned Paul. 
and drug him outside the city because they thought he was dead. He woke up, he kind of came to his senses and went back into Lystra to continue to preach to them. He risked his life for them over and over. He was devoted to these people, right? He loved them. He was committed to the gospel. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because you have to understand that Paul had this passion about him when it came to these folks. That, that he, he wasn't writing people that he barely knew. He wrote people who, who greatly impacted his life. Think about your first mission trip that you ever went on. Maybe you were a student. Maybe you were older. Maybe it was Haiti back when we were going to Haiti. Maybe it was Boston when we were going to Boston back when we could go before COVID shut all that stuff down. Think about your very first mission trip and the people that you encountered and really the stories that you continued to tell because the life experience that you had there has just kind of ingrained in who you are. That's exactly what Paul felt about the Galatian churches. These men and women he had relationship with, right? He knows the church. He knows their struggle. And last week when Paul, we read the very first thing, he says, I'm astonished. It's because he was so passionately connected to them. He loved them enough to say the hard things. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. I, with the help of the Apostle Paul, I'm going to say the hard stuff. And we've got to learn how to apply it. So if you've got your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 2, we're just going to dive right into the hypocrisy of Peter. And we're going to learn how Paul kind of just confronted it and dealt with it. Chapter 2, verse 11 says this, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So this is where it gets real, okay? Paul's not holding any punches back. Peter... The pillar, right? That's how he's uh, described in Acts. Uh, The one who Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse eight, that you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? This is Peter. This is kind of a big thing about it like this. As much as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, right? He had influence, he had clout. He had, he had a little bit of position and he even had Jesus' stamp of approval on his life. And Paul says, I opposed him to his face, right? In other words, he said, I called him out in front of everybody, in front of the church, in front of whoever was around. I publicly stood against what he was doing. I didn't talk about him behind his back. I didn't text my friend group and get a little circle chat over here going about how he wronged me. I didn't have some little hushed conversations at the back of the church so nobody can understand except for my little friend group. I didn't even put an overly vague but pretty obvious statement on Facebook about how I was upset about him. I wonder what Paul would do with Facebook. Can you imagine Paul's Facebook? No vacation pictures, no light pictures of family or anything like that. I think, I think he would just get straight to the point. And I also think he probably wouldn't have much time for Facebook. And I know that's a whole nother sermon at a whole nother day, but we'll get to that later, okay? He says, I opposed him to his face because what he was doing, he was clearly in the wrong. So what was he doing? Okay, so let's just kind of break this down. Essentially, Peter, uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was the apostle, right, to the Jews. He was, he was just kind of hardcore in that. And he was spending time with Gentiles, which 
means they were non-Jews. He was eating with them, which was culturally this huge statement of intimacy, right? If you shared a meal with somebody, but as well as that, it was a break in Levitical law. Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles, okay? So it was kind of like this, this big deal. Most of the reason was because uh, Gentiles were eating food that Jews weren't allowed to eat, okay? Think about pork and barbecue. Think about, uh, there's some birds that Jews were uh, not allowed to eat. There were some, uh, there were even some kind of fish that Jews were not allowed to eat. And most of the time, uh, Gentiles just ate everything, right? And so uh, even, uh, even to the point of like food that was sacrificed to an idol, a Jew was not allowed to eat that, but Gentiles would. I mean, they just like, hey, that's food. We're going to eat it. And so here we have Peter who was apparently good with all this stuff, right? As long as no one really important was around, But when the men from James, a.k.a. the Jews from Jerusalem, the the big dogs, the guys from the head office came down, Peter began to draw back and began to separate himself. One commentary I read said that the Greek expression here brings out the timid and gradual withdrawal ending in complete separation. Now, why would he do this? Was he ashamed of the Gentiles? Was he ashamed of himself? Was he ashamed of what he was eating? Because really, listen, what's interesting here is this is after Peter had his Acts chapter 10 vision of the sheet coming down. Y'all remember that? Remember Peter had this vision of the sheet coming down, all kinds of animals on it, and God, really Jesus, speaks from heaven, and it's this verse that every South Arkansas man knows, arise, kill, eat, right? We all, we all kind of memorize that one. And, and it's basically God saying, listen, you can eat anything you want to eat because don't call anything unclean that I made clean. You don't get to make that decision. And then after that, immediately after that, Peter goes to Cornelius's house. Y'all remember that story in Acts? And that was a Roman centurion. He goes into his house. Again, a break in Levitical law. You're not supposed to go into the house of a, of a Gentile. And Peter goes in there and he hit Cornelius and his whole house gets saved. It's this really incredible moment. And we think, okay, Peter's getting it, right? He understood. You can eat whatever you want to eat. You can hang out with whoever you want to hang out with. The whole point is just make the gospel known. But then we read in Galatians where Paul tells us he had to kind of snap him back in line. He was... Obviously, there was a little bit of hypocrisy in Peter's life. He was, let's put it this way, he was living one way, but when church people came around, he started living another. Sound familiar? We know this. We experience this. The hypocrisy of Peter is our hypocrisy. This is the same kind of stuff that we struggle with. Majority, the overwhelming majority of the church struggles with this same thing daily. This goes beyond the superficial, like, don't act that way. Here comes the preacher kind of stuff. I get that all the time. And I honestly hate it, right? Oh, you can't say that. The preacher's around. Oh, don't, don't do that. Here comes the preacher. Hide your beer. Here comes the preacher. And honestly, I just, I'm just like, act, act however you're going to act. Don't act different around me, right? But that's not... What I'm going to talk about this morning, what I'm talking about this morning is good church people. You know what I'm talking about? Good church folks who for the most part are living their lives well and they're they're making decent decisions and they're serving and they're attending and they're loving people. But there's just this part of you, this lifestyle that you're unwilling to give up, this little secret sin that you just kind of hang on to, this I'm going to say one thing, but I'm going to live another 
I'm going to act like faith is important, but it's really not. I'm going to have this standard for others, but I'm not going to have it for myself. We're going to, and when really when life goes crazy and everything begins to fall apart, I'm going to cling to this faith, but there's no evidence of it in my life. I'm going to say I believe it, but I really don't live it out. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Hear me on this church. Faith, real, genuine, authentic faith is not something that you can believe and not live. You can't believe it and not live in it. Genuinely changes everything about you. It changes the way that you spend your Saturday nights as much as it changes the way you spend your money. It changes the way you act on the golf course as much as it changes the way you act in your own home. It changes the way you interact with your spouse as much as it changes the way that you interact with your employees, right? Because real faith is lived out. It's evidence. There's no question to what you believe. There's no doubt in what you believe because you stand for what you believe. You live it out. Your, your integrity does not waver depending on the crowd of people around you. The Bible says in verse 12 that Peter was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Those, those guys from the church, those guys from back home. Did you catch verse 13? The other Jews joined him in their hypocrisy so much that their hypocrisy even led Barnabas astray. What you do affects others. How you live affects others. Either has a positive or negative effect on them, right? I say this all the time. People are watching you. They're watching the decisions that you make. They're watching the way you conduct yourself. They're watching the things that you laugh at and the things that you allow. They're, like, they're, they're looking for all those things. And, and my question to you is the, is the proof of the gospel in your life, not some made up gospel like we talked about last week, not some maligned or twisted gospel. Or if when people look at you and they watch your life, are they seeing the true gospel of Jesus played out? What version are they getting? Are they getting our version that serves us instead of us serving it? Are they getting something that is okay with the things that we do and not really standing against and standing for the things that you're supposed to be standing for? What version are you getting? Look what Paul says next, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, quote, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Right? This is like a mic drop moment. He said in front of everybody, remember this is in front of, he's not having a little hushed conversation. He called him out in front of the whole church and he says, listen, you're a Jew, but you don't live like one. You know what? Matter of fact, you're, you're living like a Gentile. You act like a Gentile. You talk like a Gentile. And, and so why is it that you're trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish customs that you yourself are not even following? In our context today, it'd be said like this. You're a Christian, but you don't live like one. You actually live like a lost person. You act like a lost person. You speak and spend and have a marriage and raise your kids and you conduct yourself and you sin like a lost person. So why are you trying to say salvation's important when you live like it's not? That's in your face. It's the reality of the comment. And when we read that in the myrtle words of Jerry West, 
boom, right? We used to read that and we go, golly, that's hard. That's like in Peter. This is Peter, right? This is not just some low-life guy on the side of the road. This is, this is a pillar of the church, and he's kind of just pointing a finger going, what's up, dude? Why are you acting like that? Why are we going to say one thing and live another? And then on top of all that, tell others that you have to be a Christian when you're not living like one yourself. Doesn't make any sense. It's the hypocrisy of the church. It's what we share in common with Peter. Now the next discussion around the next passage of scripture here is where the quotation marks end. Okay, I know that sounds weird, but when you get into all this kind of stuff, you gotta figure that stuff out. Some people believe reading everything that's happening and what Peter, Paul said to Peter in, in Antioch in, in verse 14, it says, I said to Peter in front of them all, quote, right? And some people believe that that quote ends at the end of verse 14. Some people believe the whole next part all the way down to verse 21 is part of the quote. Your Bible may even have the quotations ending there, but there's a little bit of uh, change in the conversation. It, it, it goes from, this is what I said to Peter to, now let me help you apply this in your life, Galatian churches. And so we can read this knowing whether he said it to Peter or not, we can still apply it. Okay, so just notice the change in tenor here and understand that that's kind of a question mark around some things. And some people just say, See, listen, he mingled the conversation that he had with doctrinal uh, influence and, and application to the life of the, of the Galatians. And so it doesn't really matter, but let's just keep going. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified, okay? And so this, this Gentile sinners is really said very tongue in cheek, okay? He's kind of making the, 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 the playoff of us Jews by birth. Your, your version may say uh, Jews by nature, right? In other words, we're so special, we are Jews. We are, we are God's chosen ones and these Gentile sinners. Oh my gosh. We'll do the same thing. We're Christians and all those sinners out there, right? He's just kind of playing on that. And he says, we know, we know that we're justified by faith, not the law. And we're Jews, right? We can even get that. We're the very people who God like set his uh, covenant with and made this promise to. We're the ones who live and breathe and live and die by the law. And even we know that justification comes through faith, not by observing the law. And he says, even we know and we profess that we're saved by faith, not from keeping the law. In other words, don't hold them to a standard that we're not holding ourselves to. Then he says, what's so next is so brilliant and so masterful because he takes away our argument, right? Our argument. Because even in that statement, I can hear the pushback. Okay, Matt. You're saying, and even Paul's saying here, that we're saved by faith, not from keeping the law. So how we re really live is not that important, right? As we've got this faith that we get to fall back on. We're justified by faith, not by how we live it out. But look at what Galatians chapter 2 verse 17 says. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. 
If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For though I died through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He's saying, if while we are on our journey to find righteousness in Christ, we realize that we broke the law, therefore becoming, quote unquote, a sinner, right? Does that mean Jesus' plan for us the whole time was just to become sinners? And he goes, absolutely not, right? That doesn't even make sense. Jesus' whole point and purpose was not to make us sinners. It was to make us righteous. And if you put this in 21st century American talk, he's saying, since I'm saved, doesn't that just mean I can live however I want to and do whatever I want to? Since I'm not justified by my actions, I can, I can, I can live and do and speak and act however I want to. And again, Paul and I, for that matter, scream at you, absolutely not, right? You should circle those words in your Bible because that's not how it works. And listen, I understand, here's the deal. We're talking about two sides of the same coin here, right? Even Paul's argument in scripture and how we're applying it is, is two sides of the same thing. On one hand, he's saying, Peter, quit acting like a hypocrite, right? Live what you believe. Don't change because who's around, and then he comes right back on the other side and says, acting like a Christian, doing all the right things, aka keeping the law, doesn't do anything for you without faith, right? He's, he's trying to argue both sides of the argument. And honestly, church, I believe these are the two areas that we as the church still struggle with today. We change our behavior we don't hold to what we believe. We say we believe one thing, but then we live another. We give into the crowd. We gossip and we run people into the ground. We get drunk and we act like a fool. We flirt with the idea of relationships outside of our marriage. And we say things and laugh at things and allow our kids to be involved in things that we know are not okay at the risk of being unpopular or unwelcomed or alienating ourselves. And all the while we cling to this version of faith that we've convinced ourselves is okay. And even worse, we've convinced ourselves that Jesus is okay with that. Or we simply just check all the boxes, right? We go to church, check. We do all the right things, check. We gave our offering, check. We, we convince ourselves that we're good and our good will outweigh our bad. And in the end, there's no way that Jesus could ever send a good person to hell. Well, let me just say this so that there's no confusion. Hell is full of good people. And that there's no way that we, you and I, could ever do anything to make ourselves as righteous as Christ. There's no way that you and I could ever do anything good enough to earn our way to heaven. We, we think that our own works, our own deeds would be enough, but there's no way that can ever happen. Listen, either you're bending on what you believe around specific people or you're banking on your works to be enough, and that's all a form of hypocrisy. How dare we believe that God would ever change his standard to meet our distorted view of grace? How dare we? Look how Paul wraps this up in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love this. You guys probably know this verse. I've been crucified with Christ, which means my wants and my wills and my way and my desires are all dead. They all died with him. I no longer live 
It's not about me. None of that stuff matters anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. I have this new responsibility. I have this new life. I have this new spirit inside me. And he says, really, to put it all in perspective, this whole hypocrisy argument, he says, the life I live in the body, I live for Christ. This physical life, this action-based life, this life that I live, the decisions I make, how I act, who I spend time with, what we do, what I say, all those things... This physical life, I live by faith, meaning faith drives my decisions. Faith determines my actions. Faith calls the shots on everything that I do, and it, it's the central hub of everything that I am. Listen, this takes away my righteousness. It takes away my works and my deeds. Nothing could ever be good enough outside of faith in Him. But at the same time, church, it keeps me from saying one thing and living another. I can't, with true faith, live opposed to what I believe. I can't change my behavior because certain people are around, because my faith drives my behavior. I can't say one thing and do another because it'd be literally against everything that I say and stand for, everything that makes me, me. Because the life I live in my body, I live by faith in him. It's time for us to quit playing the game of hypocrisy and truly live by faith. Next verse, 221 says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul wraps up this whole thought, right? Going back to the law, this thought of keeping the law, checking the boxes, doing all the right things, as if that would be enough for right standing with God. And he said, if we could do that, if, if there was another way for our righteousness to be attained, then Jesus would have never come and died. What was the whole point of that? The whole point of him coming and dying is because we couldn't do it on our own. We have to have him, right? If you believe that Jesus was who he says he was, if you believe that he truly was the son of God and that he came and provide redemption, to sinners, right, that we came to die for the sin of man. If there was any other way, he wouldn't have done that. It's the only way. It was possible. He died for us. At the very least, we should live for him. Here's my last thought, and I'm going to wrap this up. Parents, okay, let's just talk parents here. Teenagers, we'll get to you in just a little bit. It doesn't matter if you've got a two-year-old or a 52-year-old, let's just say. You're a parent and you understand that feeling, right? When, when your child didn't or doesn't do something the way they're supposed to, maybe they didn't put enough effort into it or maybe they just didn't really do it at all. And that, that feeling you feel when that rises up inside you and a lot of you are going, yes, rage, feel it. I got it. Not rage, okay, not that. But that you're not really mad. You're not really just, you're not angry, you just kind of, right? You're just a little, why? That's the question we ask. Why? Why don't you just do it? Why don't you do it the right way? Why don't you do what I told you to do? Why? Right? We ask that question as parents all the time. There's a really interesting word in verse 21. That verse we just read. Now I got it all on the screen again. It says this, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That word set aside is the Greek word, adeteo. And it, and it means this, to reject or to set aside. That's the reason why the NIV says it like that. Or to thwart the efficiency of something, right? But another defining 
word of aditeo is frustrate. If you have a King James Version Bible, that's the, that's the word that it says. I do not frustrate the grace of God. And if we're honest, that feeling that we feel towards our kids when they don't do what they're supposed to do is probably best summarized as frustration, right? We're just frustrated. We're not mad at them. We're really not really disappointed. We're just, we're just frustrated, right? And I wonder how many times we have frustrated grace because of our behavior. I wonder when we say one thing and we act another, one group of friends comes around, we act completely different. I wonder if God's sitting up there thinking, is that what I've saved you for? Is that what I've purposed you for? Maybe we just try to do it all of our own. We bypass God on our road to self-righteousness, right? And God's got to be thinking, why don't you just surrender? Why don't you just, why don't you just give in and let me help? It's got to get so frustrated. He's not mad. Maybe sometimes he's mad. I think that most of the time he's just frustrated by our lack of action, by our hearts, by this lack of faith or this distorted view of grace. Church, the only way to unfrustrate something is to do it right. The only way to, to, to unfrustrate grace is to have an appropriate view of grace. To live correctly, to put away the hypocrisy of our hearts, of our faith, and truly live what we believe. Live what we say we believe. Peter needed to be snapped back. Paul is telling the Galatian churches all of this because they needed to be kind of recentered as well. Listen, I'm not afraid to do it to Peter. I'm not afraid to do it to you. Quit living one way and saying you believe another. And church, it's time to unfrustrate the grace that's been given to us as well. Would you pray with me as TJ comes and we're going to have a moment of invitation just to kind of, uh, kind of recenter. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with us as we pray. And if you need to come and if you need to talk to somebody, or if you need somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that with you. Maybe you need to join the church or you just need to say, listen, I need to understand this grace on a level that I've never understood before. I need to get saved. I need to understand what this whole life and this faith devoted to Christ really is and how that connects to each other. Let me, let me pray for us and, and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. You can do that where you stand or you can do that here with me. I'm happy to talk to you. Let's not miss the moment of surrender in these next few moments. This is the most important time we have today. Let's give it to him fully. Father, we love you and we thank you for the reality of this moment in Peter's life and that Paul retells to us and how, God, really we a lot struggle with hypocrisy and with saying one thing and living another. And, and God, we don't want to frustrate you with our life and our devotion and our version of faith. God, we want to live this out wholeheartedly. And God, we pray right now in this moment that whatever level of hypocrisy, whether it's the change in integrity or it's the checking off of boxes, God, we wanna just be honest with you right now and ask for forgiveness. God, we wanna do a very big church word and just repent. It means we acknowledge what we've done. We ask for forgiveness and we leave it. God, we don't come back to us. 
Father, this morning, God, maybe a morning that somebody says, you know what, we need to join. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to just kind of recenter or maybe even we need to get saved. God, I pray that this morning is a morning that people would do that and be obedient to what you're calling to them, not white knuckle in our chairs, but to move forward in this gift of grace that you've given us. God, we love you and give you the next few moments to be real to us. Help us be obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to come while we sing, then you come.